Welcome to Brain and Avert. We're delighted to be joined by John Pike, and we are going to be talking about trance athletes in sport. John, would you like to start with a thought experiment? So I've drawn this thought experiment from a paper by someone called Arvo Pedersen, which is published in his in Psychology. And they investigate women's soccer and men's soccer and the differences between the two games. The thought experiment they present is to imagine a third sex, if you like, of supermen who are different in terms of their anthropometry and their physiology from men as men are different from women. So they are on average taller, bit faster, larger lung capacity and so on. And the proportions map across. Now they pursue this thought experiment and then say, what would the pitch look like? And what would the goals look like if the ratio of goals and pitch to supermen was the same as the ratio of goals and pitch to men? And of course they'd be, the goals would be bigger and the pitch would be bigger. And they calculate that the length of the game should be not 90 minutes, but 113 minutes. Now they want to show that the women's game, which is played on standard sized pitches is different because of the nature of female bodies. So it's actually a bit easier to score a goal because the height of the goalie a bit shorter for the same size of goal. But on the other hand, they're not able to kick the ball quite so hard because leg strength is different. So it's a different sort of game. That's the point they make. The point I'm interested in taking out of this thought experiment is that suppose we had a group of supermen who then wanted to play men's soccer, male soccer, let's say, because they didn't identify as supermen, but they identified as men and they wanted to come into the male game. Then I think we understand some aspects of this question much better. It's because there isn't this third sex of supermen. The, the question of trans inclusion focuses on women's sport. And I think it's an attack on women's sport, whether intentionally or not. I think it undermines women's sport. But if we understood it in terms of the way bodies fit with sporting endeavor, with sporting actions, and we thought about it in terms of this contrast between men and supermen, then I think we'd understand the question a bit better. So it sounds like a lot of the work that's happening is in this claim that the game should be different in the case of the supermen. So the pitch should be larger perhaps, and the goalposts should be slightly wider apart, and the duration of the game should be longer. And if we accept that the game should be different, but then nevertheless, we put supermen into what we call a normal sized pitch. In other words, what we today as men play with on the pitch with a 90 minute game instead of 113 minutes and with goalposts that are narrower than how we calculate they should be for those supermen, then we see this mismatch and we say, well, they shouldn't be on this pitch. And so it seems like then you can get to the conclusion that they shouldn't be participating with 
cisgendered men. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. so then the objection has to be to that initial claim that they should be playing on a different pitch. Mm. So I was wondering what kind of supporting arguments are given for that by the authors of that paper or by you. So why should we think that, that it should be scaled up? Right. So the authors of this paper don't give an argument and we're getting quite quickly into deep territory to do with my particular account of sport, which is about the fit between bodies and the outside world. So they're just saying, look, let's suppose we've got the same game and we're kind of just projecting everything up by 10%, then this is what would happen to bodies, but this is also what would happen to the pitch. Now, why do we have that balance of all these variables in the first place? I mean, that's a very good, very interesting question. I think, and I've argued that there's a kind of funneling effect in the development of sport such that we generate rules which are as they are because those rules allow for the most interesting and difficult competitive actions. So a fairly standard thing to say is why is the basketball fight where it is? Now there's an ordinary everyday response to that in the genesis of basketball, that there was some sort of height around the hall that made it handy to fix the hoops of that, where it was first played, where it was first invented. But of course, that's not the explanation of why they stayed at that height or why the height was fixed in that way. The height was fixed in that way because it turned out that was a sort of sweet spot for the actions of bouncing a ball and trying to score a basket. And you can imagine that if it was much higher, it would turn out to be too difficult to score a basket. And if it was much lower, it would be too easy to score a basket. Now, all these variables are going to convert the size of the pitch, the size of the, the basketball arena, the size of ball, the size of the baskets, the height of the baskets, they're all going to come into some sort of equilibrium. And that equilibrium is going to be relatively fixed by human bodies. Now, of course, you can adjust a centimeter up or down, and it would make a huge amount of difference, but it would make a little bit of difference. And so we can see really, I mean, my kind of slogan is, the rules must fit round the human body and successful sports are ones where the rules fit round the human body and unsuccessful sports are ones where they don't fit round the human body. I've got a couple of thoughts. So the one would be to support your view, which is that we think about children's basketball versus NBA. You say, well, the kids are a lot shorter. They're going to get exhausted more quickly. So we will make the basketball court smaller. We'll put the hoops lower. And we think that a good competitive game, you score around whatever it is, 80 points per side. And well, it turns out that the kids can score around that. It's the equivalent. And we've translated the game. Here's where one of my concerns come in, which is that I think 
there is a group of people called supermen that professional NBA players don't look like ordinary human beings. They're genetic freaks. They're very tall. And that gives them this enormous advantage. And they can beat out someone else who trains hard, who cares very much about basketball, but is five foot eight, versus the person who is six foot eight, who just has this gigantic unearned benefit that they have. And this class of supermen can basically make ordinary men completely and utterly uncompetitive. And so you might think that you should have different leagues, that you could say, well, there ought to be different height divisions within basketball to keep the sport competitive. And we shouldn't allow these ubermenschen to compete with the ordinary Joe Soaps like us. And we should have a separate league for them. But that's not what we do. We say we care about the most competitive version of this thing. And if you are really good at this game, you get to play. If you're not really good at this game, tough. You get kicked out of the sport. It's interesting, but it's not the biggest fight <laughs> on, on the hands of people who want to establish the integrity of sport and fair sport. And the reason I suppose is that people who are less than five foot nine can go and do lots of other things. But it's also that our society, as it happens, is not radically stratified on the basis of height, whereby people over five foot nine get, you know, the plum jobs, the plum positions, the most attractive partners and so on. So I'd appeal to something like Michael Waltz's spheres of justice idea about this being an area of a society in which you get some credit for being tall, but that doesn't carry through to other aspects of life. So it's not that the inequality there is not as worrisome as it would be in other cases. So if I understand correctly, it's not that fairness is what really matters to you, or maybe it is, but just for the sake of this argument, it's the competitiveness of the game that you're trying to maximize. So you're trying to set out the criteria for the game in such a way that, that it's the most competitive possible, which maybe implies fairness, because if the game is radically unfair, then it won't mm. be very competitive. Then one side will always win or almost always win. Have I got that right? Right. So competitiveness isn't itself the intrinsic value that I'm after. What I'm after is the intrinsic value of difficult actions. So what I think is unique about sport is that it's focused on doing very difficult things like cycling very fast, faster than everyone else, or getting a ball through a basket or swimming very quickly. All these things are difficult, all of them require a great deal of effort and training and so on. Now, how do we get to the most difficult actions, if you like? Well, you can think of the, you know, it's pretty straightforward to throw a ball into a goal. It's less easy to kick it. So we make it the, the action more difficult by saying you can't handle the ball. And then we put a bunch of people in front of you we're trying to get the ball off you and score at the other end. That makes it difficult to score a goal. Now, the competition and fair competition kick in by making it really very difficult to do these particular winning moves. But you want to win the game. And so the 
competition generates the difficulty. And I think if there is an intrinsic value for sport, I think it's trying to do difficult things. I wonder though, whether it's possible to have a different account of the difficulty. So perhaps what we're interested in when we watch sport and spectators mm. are intrigued by it is not because it's difficult for that person who's playing to do it, but it would be difficult for the rest of us. So in other words, we think about ourselves in that situation and the yeah. average person in that situation, we think, gosh, that would be so tough to do it. But Michael Phelps with his webbed hands and his incredible length, he's able to traverse that pool in a way that I couldn't and the rest of us couldn't and all these other competitors can't. And we're wowed by that. So I'm offering an alternative account of difficulty, not for the player playing, but for the average person. And if we accept that account of difficulty, then maybe the trance athlete or the Superman isn't a problem. It's not a threat to the impressiveness and the difficulty of that action, because it doesn't have to be difficult for them. Yes. Unpersuaded by that argument, I think Michael Phelps found it difficult to win the races that he one, I think he was going all out and, you know, one slip up, one poor stroke, one poorly executed turn, and he would have lost. And that's because the margins, although he did, you know, quite spectacular physique, the margins were still quite close. I mean, there are lots of reasons why I think the Phelps gambit fails in the argument about transport, but you know, that's a step further. So. Yes, I think the competition pushes people to difficult actions. And there's a lot of interesting work in kind of action theory and the degree to which it comes easily. And the whole debate about intellectualism in action. And I'm quite persuaded by Barbara Montero's work. Barbara argues that. Well, she argues about the Nike slogan, just do it. And her experiences as a ballet dancer, <laughs> she gets quite annoyed by the thought that you could just do it. You could lose yourself in the music and just express yourself. He says, you know, hours and hours and hours, years and years of really hard work to make it look easy. And I'm kind of persuaded by that, but I think. There's also an interest in two facets of the difficulty, whether it is difficult for the agent or whether it is difficult for the species. Um, I think in practice, it's almost always difficult for the agent as well as being difficult for the species. I think Roger Federer, for example, practices very hard and finds it difficult to play the beautiful tennis that he played. So I want to get back to something you alluded to earlier when we talked about basketball and you wanted to say, look, we don't need to protect short people. They're not a disadvantaged group. And the implication is we do need to protect women. They're a disadvantaged group. In other words, the reason why we don't have men and women competing against each other is that if we did, there'd be very few women in the NBA. The men would just dominate them. And so that's why we want this protected class so that they've got a chance. We don't need to do that for short people because short people have it easy, you know, or they don't suffer the same systemic oppression. But if we go down that route, doesn't it open up something else, which is trans people must be even more marginalized than women. This is a group that sort of 
newish on the scene, that faces a lot of hostility, that isn't openly welcomed in many sectors, doesn't that mean that category of people needs to be given extra special attention, extra benefits, all the sort of stuff that you're willing to do to protect women, well, we need to go above and beyond for trans athletes, because that's the thing that you seem to care about, which is protecting this particular category of persons in their ability to play sport, favoring the kind of inclusivity line in sports, saying, you know, it's important in sport to be inclusive, to give you know, this class of people an opportunity to compete and to do the difficult things. So surely we should give that best possible shot to trans athletes and we can put our thumb on the scales. That's totally fine because we're willing to do it for women. This is an argument that in many respects I agree with for making sport maximally inclusive, welcoming trans people into sport. We need to be creative and think through how we encourage trans people to play sport. It can't come at the expense of fair sport for women, in my view, just as the incorporation of supermen into male sport should not come at the expense of fair sport for men, were we to face that particular scenario. So part of this is the reason for thinking that an open category in place of a male category would be a positive way forward. And I'm kind of delighted that Fina and British Triathlon both looked at this as a way of being maximally inclusive. And I suppose rhetorically, I mean, there's philosophy going on, but rhetorically saying, look, this is an open category for anyone, regardless of your gender identity. You don't need to declare your gender identity in any way. You know, say what one thing or another thing, you don't need to affirm or deny. It's open for people who are non-binary. It's open for people who don't even want to say that they're non-binary or neutral or you know, whatever the term is. There's no declaration required. That's as inclusive, it seems to me, as one could be. The inclusion, though, is constructed by the categories that we have. I mean, I'm not in favor of including 18-year-olds in under-14s soccer. That's, if someone wants to say, well, you're failing to be inclusive there, I'm going to scratch my head and say, well, yes, I suppose I am. But that's not the inclusion that we want. That sort of inclusion isn't a good. So there are ways and ways of thinking about inclusion, it seems to me, that we need to unpick. And it's used as shorthand that really covers up quite a lot of tricky, tricky claims. Certainly there are some inclusive claims that I just, you know, I'm not going to take seriously. So I wonder whether a more difficult case for you than the basketball case would be the Kenyan runners. So Kenyan runners are born at an altitude where they have a larger lung span. They're able to metabolize oxygen better. They do seem to have a sort of natural advantage, maybe not to the point where it's just easy for them to be world champion runners, but it does seem like they have a significant advantage and it would satisfy the criterion, if I understand correctly, that you've made for distinguishing different categories according to categories that we distinguish in everyday life. So we don't stratify society by height, but we do by ethnicity and by nationality. And so I think on your reasoning, we should have a different class for Kenyan runners versus other countries at a lower altitude without that natural boost. So 
I'm not going to deny that there are physiological advantages, but there are also social advantages for East African runners, Kenyan and Ethiopian runners. I, th I think the ratio of professional runners between East Africa, let's say Kenya and the UK is about 1000 to one, right? So there are maybe a dozen professional marathon runners in the UK and what 12,000 in, in Ethiopia. But of course that picks up on this tradition, this, this way in which marathon running is a way to riches and so on. So you're going to get all those kind of social and cultural factors kicking in. There might be a case for a protected class, if you like, of European marathon runners, if European marathon runners thereby had horrible lives and were economically destitute and, uh, were in a subordinate position in other contexts and other views of the world. But it's very interesting because you can actually sort of pan out some of the ethnic and social advantages here because Japanese marathon running sort of sits between East African and European marathon runners. So Japan is very, marathon running is very popular and you've got many more Japanese runners around the 207, 208, 209 times than you have European runners, but they're still off the sort of 203, 204 of the Kenyan runners. Now, what does that entail? Does it entail that we are interested in the first Japanese runner at the Olympics? Well, sort of, yes. I mean, there is an interesting kind of internal dynamic to races with Japanese runners. Are we interested in the first European runner? By which we mean, obviously, the first white European runner. Well, sort of, yes. But do we think there should be a category for both those groups that protects them from the East African runners? I think no. I think there's no case for that. Because apart from the kind of the salience of the stratification not being dominant beyond marathon running, I think there are other interesting problems and worries about the stratification on the basis of ethnicity. So it's kind of an interesting physiological argument. I don't think we've got to the bottom of it. It's not clear what the nature of the advantages are. We'd be silly to ignore it, but I don't think they have the normative significance that the categories of male and female do in sport. So here's the worry that I have, which is these other norms are playing some role in what categories you want to have in sport and who you want to protect. And so you want to say, look, there's some really promising European marathon runners who are day in and day out there running their lungs out. And it could be amazing if they didn't have to compete against the Kenyans who have this really unfair advantage of being able to run up in the hills. And if we did create a category for them, they'd have a fighting chance. And it would mean a lot to all those Europeans say, our guys are out there. But Europeans have got this history of prospering in all these other fields. And we don't really like those honkies. But they're... <laughs> 
And those poor East Africans ravaged by war and have had a hard time and the systemic racism, let them have the running. Come on. There's one thing they're really good at. Just give them the Olympic medals. Just take it in the, in the chin, you Europeans. You deserve it. If that's the line you're going to run, <laughs> then I'm going to say, I'm sorry, ladies. You've, we've gone over and above for you. We created your own category. There are these uh, people who watch women's sports, allegedly. I know the women's basketball players don't get paid much because no one comes to their games. But I'm sorry. Trans people, they're a, an extreme minority. You guys have had your time in the sun. And I know some of you have dedicated your lives and dreams and you're running there and you're working really hard. But these trans athletes need their moment and they want to get their medals. And so I'm sorry, you have to take it in the chin just like those Europeans. It seems like you have to bite that bullet. I don't see how you get out of it once you start saying there's other things that play a role in terms of great special categories for who gets protected, who gets a, you know, a better chance than others. Right. So my basic case is that the justifiability of the category arises from an, a natural kind difference right, between males and females. And there isn't that natural kind difference between ethnicities of male runners. So that, I think, is the morally relevant difference that I pick for. And of course, if you are eliminating a natural kind advantage, then that explains that they should not be in that category. And we do think kind advantages matter rather than just degree advantages, because we think, for example, if you think about anti-doping, we don't prescribe performance-enhancing drugs because of the signs of the advantage that they can deliver but because of the kind of advantage that they do, which is an advantage that you don't, as it were, work for, or you know, that comes from injection, that isn't part of the process that we want people who are trying to who are becoming athletes to go through. So we do make kind advantage distinctions. And I think the sex kind advantage is a distinction that works and we should stick with. So, I mean, isn't analogous with the race circumstance. I suppose what I'm gesturing at is that there can be cases made for something like a 5-9 restriction for non-East African restriction, that the cases for those aren't particularly strong, but you know, someone could go and make the case. We can argue out what the category limit should be, but then eligibility into that category, which is what we're really talking about, comes from the justification of the category itself rather than something else. Yeah. So that seems consistent to me. So the idea is that in the case of men and women, they're different natural kinds. And so they could have different categories. And I guess then your claim has to be that trans men or rather trans women and cisgendered women are also different natural kinds. And yeah. so trans women need to have a different category. Obviously there's going to be debate over that claim, but if you, if we grant you the claim, then it's a consistent view. Okay. So what I want to do is return to one of the fundamental assumptions that we were discussing previously, which is this idea that the difficulty of the sport is what matters. So one of our previous guests on the show, Stephen Kirshner, he holds the view that difficulty, fairness, competitiveness, none of those features matter to the value of sport. So he gives a lot of cases of teams who play where one has a massive advantage over the other, but people still love watching or a player dominates a sport and people still love watching that it's not less valuable to the viewer. 
It seems that it doesn't undermine the value of the game. I think, for example, about Magnus Carlsen in the world of chess. So Magnus Carlsen has been the world champion for many years. Interestingly, as of a few days before this recording, he stepped down from participating in the next world championships. But he really is leagues ahead of everyone else. And the reason he stepped down, he said he doesn't enjoy the competition anymore. He didn't say it in these words, but because he's too good, no one can compete. I mean, the last few world matches, he's just dominated. But people love watching him. And they say that his stepping down is going to be a blow for the sport, that fewer people watch. And I can tell you, I personally am watching less online chess than I was because, well, Magnus Carlsen isn't playing. But Magnus Carlsen makes it look easy. Now, I understand your argument earlier that it's not actually easy for him. He still had to do an enormous amount of work to get to that point where he can participate so seamlessly or apparently easily. But what Kirshner's point is that if we had a person for whom it was easy, that wouldn't make it any less interesting for the viewer and it wouldn't harm the sport because spectators love this, right? They love watching runaway winners. I presented a case to him that I thought he couldn't bite the bullets on this, but he did. And the case was, imagine a match where we give one side arbitrarily a hundred point start in soccer, for example, so that the other team couldn't possibly catch up. That seems like it would be a bad game. It wouldn't be as valuable a game. It wouldn't be as good. The sport wouldn't be as good. However, we define good. And he bit the bullet on that. And he said, no, he said, just because there's an inordinate advantage for one side doesn't make it less valuable. People might love watching it. And he gave examples of David and Goliath and, and the Colosseum. You've got these, you know, incredibly strong participants who kill lots of other participants. It seems like maybe that account that you have could be challenged. Well, I think we need to separate out a few things here. Fairness and non-domination come apart. And this is something some of the advocates of trans inclusion miss, that they say it's fair to include trans women in female sport. If there is meaningful competition, to use Joanna Harper's phrase, which seems to mean that the competition is close and we can't predict who's going to win. But that's not a criterion of fairness, it seems to me. Usain Bolt, which is a sporting case like your chess case, Usain Bolt won fairly. If he had tripped up or messed up his start, he would have lost fairly because fairness doesn't depend on the outcomes of, doesn't depend who wins because fairness is purely procedural. Now, I think that distinguishing fairness from kind of domination and non-domination is quite important. And that really speaks to the sort of case that, that you presented and that Kirshner presents. So fair sport is not the same as dominant sport, and that's not the same as exciting sport. There are as there are a good match, a good game, a good race that are nothing to do with fairness and nothing to do with domination. There's all sorts of features of excitement, closeness, aesthetics, drama. All of those are kind of interesting aspects of sport. They're part of why we watch sport, why we do sport, but I just don't think they're the same as fairness in sport. And I don't think the meaning of sport can be, can be separated out very easily from fairness and the fairness of competition, going at getting at the value 
which I think is the basic value, which is the value of difficult actions. So I wonder about this. I think you're right to draw all those distinctions to say that you can have an exciting game that players love and follow voraciously without it being fair. It doesn't yep. necessarily have to be difficult either. It could be that it's difficult and that makes it enjoyable, or it could be that it's incredibly difficult and that's what makes it incredibly dull and horrible to watch. I personally can't understand how people watch five-day cricket. It strikes me as one of the dullest games possible, but I imagine it's quite a difficult thing to do. You know, there's this patience game, a mental game, because you're wearing people down very slowly. I imagine our American viewers will be particularly astonished at the idea of a game that goes for five days, that there's no real parallel beyond the Commonwealth countries having a game like that. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, 2020 brings in much more revenue. It's a much more exciting game. Yeah. Maybe it's not as difficult to just try and hit the ball as hard as you can, you know, but people yeah. love it. So I buy that you can have these distinctions. So it seems to me that you could have a form of sport that includes trans athletes, that includes difficulty, where we say, wow, this person has done this very hard feet and that's amazing and you could find that astonishing and praiseworthy and say it's hard for them and I definitely couldn't do it. It could yeah. be very exciting and competitive. It might involve a David and Goliath element in it and that it might be the case that most of the time a certain athlete is going to win. But occasionally when the you know the David underdog wins we go, wow unbelievable like what an upset and that makes mm. it exciting. Mm. And then on the fairness front there'll be a question as to what makes it fair. So you could say everybody is subject to the same rules of the game. No one's allowed to use performance enhancing drugs, for example. You could have a rule like that. Everybody's got to start at the same line. Everybody's got to play within the same time. So the rules of the game are identical for all players. Mm. Now, the bit you're going to say that's unfair is that the trans players, let's say, were born into a different natural kind to some of the other players. And mm. I said, well, that's very simple to solve. I've moved to the other natural kind. As a trans woman, I am a woman. I've transformed mm. myself into their natural kind. So. Your fairness criterion is met. What are you complaining about? Let me play, let me wow the crowds. Yes. So, I mean, this is kind of the crux, I suppose. And I'm going to say that you can't change sex. And in the sense that we are defining women for the purposes of sport, which has to do with bodies, biological development, it's just not appropriate, I suppose or helpful, or it misses the point to say trans women because they affirm the identity of women and the whole point of being a woman is affirming this identity and so on. You could present it more strongly that trans women necessarily have male bodies because that's true, that their Y chromosomes are replicated through every cell and so on, but it doesn't work as an approach to something that is body-centered, which sport is. So sport is intrinsically about bodies and essentially about bodies, which is why I think chess is not a sport and, you know, esports are not necessarily sports. So that, that's all part of the whole approach that I'm trying to outline. And so a sense of gender identity just doesn't figure in the categorization of sport. It's not there. It's gone missing. It's not relevant. So I wonder, let's grant your definition of sport and let's grant that this is how we should understand sport. Couldn't the objector then say, well, I'm not interested in sport. I'm interested in sport. And mm. in sport, we have a different stipulative definition. And that definition is, 
we value other things. It's no longer about difficulty. It's about gender inclusivity. It's about other values. And that's what we care about. And we should have sport, not sport. So that is broadly the line that's taken by Glees and Leerbach in a paper in which they want to move beyond fairness to seeing sport as a construction of narratives. And one of the narratives is a gender narrative. Now, it's interesting to think about where that gets us beyond banging the table and saying, that's just not what sport is. That isn't, it's something different. It's a different practice. And this one has its own reasonably well-established normative guiding principles. And I suppose I can present an argument for why difficult actions are of value in terms of realizing one's purpose in the world. But if you're going to reject that, I, I, I don't have terribly much to say. Um, it yeah. is a sort of banging the table point. I, I can accept it, right? So I could say mm. that I, I see the value in difficult actions. I see the value in sport as you've defined it, mm. but I also see value in something else. And mm. now it just becomes, well, sport has the values of inclusivity. And as you said, some sort of dialogue or narrative mm. space around mm. accepting gender instead of just sex, mm. whatever it is, the point is there'll be a different set of values and yeah. performing difficult actions in sport has another set of values. And now it's just about evaluating which values are more important. And I wouldn't even know where to begin to do that or yeah. how to begin to do that. I can't see a way to do that. Yeah. But then I wonder whether we haven't reduced ourselves to something like Stephen Kirshner's position, which is basically that it's entirely arbitrary whether a sporting board decides whether to include trans athletes or not. If they do, then it's fine. If they don't, then it's fine. In other words, it's entirely arbitrary. But I wonder if we haven't arrived at arbitrariness here because now we don't know which is better, sport or sport. So if that is the case, then yes, you can hang on to your sport as being exclusive in certain ways, but we've still got sport and now we have to decide. So it just seems to me like it reduces down to Stephen Kirshner's position. Okay, but here's the problems I'd have with this position that we're not talking about two practices kind of side by side but introducing a series of considerations into one practice that actively undermine its value. So a concrete case would be Leo Thomas and the rich philosophical outcome of that was that in that race, in the race that Leo Thomas won, the value of their sport and in fact, the value of difficult actions, because I do think it was easier for Leo Thomas was kind of corroded and undermined. Now, I, I, maybe you could be neutral about that and say, well, if it undermines one particular value, but the fair and another sort of value. But I think that there is a problem there, that it's not arbitrary that male-bodied people are kept out of female sport for the sake of fairness for women. So I suppose. I think that's more than banging the table and more than, more than don't agree with the account that it's arbitrary, whether you have an inclusive or an exclusive. I should maybe say one reason for that, which is going all the way back to the thought experiment, 
that would show us that a third sex of supermen would raise all sorts of issues about undermining fairness and competition for men. Now, the fact that we don't have a third sex of supermen means that the only people whose sport is undermined and threatened and corroded are women. Right now, the trends, the issue of trans inclusion in sport, though there are issues, separate issues and distinct issues about including trans men in male sport, the sport that is undermined and corroded and threatened is female sport. And I think that matters. So overall, we're looking at a discriminatory arrangement. The claim that it's arbitrary, whether you have inclusive or exclusive sport impacts upon women's sport only. And I think that's a problem. So a couple of rejoinders. The one I think is that Jason's not banging on the table or just insisting. Yeah. What he's saying is there are two separate categories that one could value. It's similar to something Jonathan Haidt said about universities. Jonathan Haidt said you can value a university that's about safe spaces and affirming you and giving you hugs, or you can mm. be a value university that's about seeking truth. He says, mm. you know, there are different kinds of universities. Just be clear about it. Stick a label. If Harvard decides it's about truth seeking, cool, then that's what you know what you're in for. Don't expect any hugs. If Yale says, you know what, we're just here to make you sure you have a good time, well, then you know you're signing up with that thing. They're both called university, but they're different experiences and you know what you're in, in the different categories. And that's why yep. Jason says, well, you can have sports and sport prime or sport. Saying like, okay, it's its own thing. So in other words, when you're looking at the Leah Thomas match, you can just go, well, that's not sport. That's fine. Whatever you're doing, that's great. You know, it looks like you're being very inclusive and that's great for this new thing that you've created. But that runs in parallel to what we consider sport. In other words, the non-prime version of it, the original version of it. Mm. But here's some complications. We think about the Olympics as being the place for the best of the best athletes to compete. As we say, if you have dedicated your life to the sport and you are excellent, the Olympics is the place where you put yourself on display. But at various times and in various sports, they've said, yeah, unless you're a professional athlete, then you don't get to compete. So if you're Muhammad Ali, Sorry, you don't get to be in the Olympics because we think what we care about is amateur sport, not people who are professional deriving income from it. And then people start to lobby and they go, hold on a second, like I really do love the sport and this is my life. And the fact that I happen to make some money out of it, why should that exclude me in the Olympics? They go, okay, fine, you guys can compete. You can be an Olympian. But these other guys, no. And so they have totally and utterly arbitrary criteria about yeah. which divisions you have to be a pro athlete and which ones you can't. And this sort of slowly transforms over time. And the committee just changes their rules. And people go, well, it's an Olympic committee. They can do whatever the hell they like. It's their club. It's their rules. It's up to them. Yeah, maybe it's fair to include these people, exclude these people. Yeah, it's uncompetitive. Ah, it cuts these guys out. It's unfair and so. But it's the Olympics. What are you going to do about it? If you don't like it, create your own club. And that's the kind of question of point, which is make your own club. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't like that this is a cis woman only club, well, then create the other club, which is cis and trans women get to compete against each other. Oh, you don't like that trans women are competing? Well, tough. This is the rules of the club. Get over it. You know, and the, the rules are going to shift and they're going to morph just like they have throughout the history of sports. And the wailing and gnashing of teeth about this is unfair or this is fair. Well, it's caked into the nature of the thing. The rules shift. Who gets allowed in? Who doesn't? Shifts over time. Yeah. Nothing. There's nothing caked into the nature of reality or the rules of the universe that sport has to 
be this way. Just a variety of it, range of different rule sets that could be around, and maybe something new will prosper from it. You know, the first time someone's playing soccer and they pick up the ball, they say, you're cheating, you can't do that. And then rugby's formed. So you'll yeah. have this new category. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of things going on there, and I'm kind of out of sync with quite a lot of people in the philosophy of sport who buy that more conventionalist line, the line that sport is a bunch of conventions or a bunch of rules. Now, from what I've said right at the beginning of discussion about the relationship between the body and the rules, and that some rules can fit the body better than others, I think that gives a kind of underpinning of some features, I'd say essential features of particular sports. Now. Clearly, there are rules that are straightforward in conventions. So a standard one is wearing white at Wimbledon. And you can say, well, you know, and not having advertising slogans, you can say, well, that's a tradition. That's not particularly practical. That's just there for the sake of it. And that rule is up for revision and not an intrinsic part of the sport at all. And if you like, that's a rule that is a long way from the core or the essence of tennis, right? But there are rules that are closer to the essence of tennis and balances that are closer to the essence of tennis, such as racket size in relation to ball size, ball size and racket size have to correlate in order to allow the particular excellences of playing tennis. Those excellencies are determined by the body. So, I mean, there's some rough texture here and there's some kind of fitting things together and there's some balancing that can go on. But it does seem to me that if you are to have a game like tennis, that puts in certain physical restrictions on, you know, size of courts and so on. Now, I think that the same applies to sexed categories, that the body and the differences between male and female bodies mandate, if you like, certain rules for competitive sport. And I think in particular, they mandate the rule that in sex-affected sports, there should be different classes for males and females because of physiological sex distinctions. I'd like to ask about this notion of the body in sports. So I'm not entirely sure what you mean. So I come from a chess background and I was going to make a funny quip that I've never met a bodiless chess player, but I have this computer chess. Um, and I kind of go along with your intuition that computers playing chess would not be a sport, although not entirely sure about that because there is actually a world computer championships every year and the competition is very strong and computers are always evolving to the point now where they're far superior to people. But let's put the computers aside for a moment. Chess players, their bodies are involved, they're moving the pieces, but they're involved in other ways as well. It's actually quite grueling to play long chess matches over the duration of a tournament. You have to be quite fit. Chess players, usually there are exceptions, but most chess players are quite fit. It's quite tough on the body. I'm not sure what the clear distinction would be between what chess player bodies are doing and soccer player bodies, for example. I was thinking maybe what you want to say is what matters in chess is where the pieces are on the board, as opposed to in soccer, it's where the bodies are on the field. 
But that's actually not what matters. What matters is where the ball is, which seems analogous to the pieces. So I'm not entirely sure what the distinction would be between chess and soccer, for example, and why the body's playing such a role. Okay, so we're talking about chess, the practice, rather than a particular tournament and the rules governing a particular tournament. Chess, the practice, is not, as I understand, constrained by bodily movements at all. So you can play chess by email, you can play chess by snail mail, you can talk your way through a chess game with voice-activated software and so on. So there is no bodily action that is essential for chess. So, I mean, to use this, the, the jargon, a chess move can be multiply realized. There are hundreds and hundreds of ways to do it. Now that is not true, it seems to me, for any sport. Now, this gets into interesting areas when you think about sort of Formula One motor racing and radio controlled cars, for example. I think Formula One is just about the sport. But if you made the cars radio controlled, and you can imagine, you know, that sort of contest, then it would stop being a sport because you wouldn't be turning a steering wheel, but you'd be shifting a joystick or you'd be playing to the computer screen. And that distance between the action, the physical action, and as it were, the sporting action is what's critical. So that for me is the dividing line between sport and non-sport. I think it works in the case of chess. So I absolutely accept that it could be a grueling thing to, to do a chess tournament and you have to be there. But I don't think that's essential to chess. I just I think I could do it different ways. I wonder what you make of a tournament like the Special Olympics, where you have athletes who've got very different kinds of bodies because of the particular disability that they have. So you can have a blind athlete competing against an amputee in the same sport. And one way of trying to make it competitive is to have a point system. So you have a set of advantages or handicaps so that you can say, well, look, we think, let's say, being a blind shot put player is easier than being a shot put player who's missing a leg because it puts your balance off. So we're going to give the person missing a leg additional points so that it's a fair competition. Given that you have this disparity of different bodies and that you have a tournament that you know operates and is quite well regarded. So there's a famous and then later infamous Paralympian Oscar Pistorius in South Africa, you know, who competes at a very high level and ultimately competes in the ordinary Olympics as well. And there was a debate as to whether he had a, an unfair advantage because of his prosthetic legs. But there's, you know, he competed against athletes with a whole range of different disabilities. Could you not do something like that with trans athletes? So you could say, okay, let's take into account the particular advantage that you have. And I think we should also talk about what advantages you think trans athletes have, whether there should be steps taken to ameliorate those advantages. The ones taken by the Olympic Committee appear to be around managing your testosterone levels. You could have some mechanism like that. And you say, okay, well, now we feel like it's all fair. We've compensated you with this handicapping system. You're now at a point of equilibrium. And it's just a matter of how hard you work at the game, how you apply your mind, what tactical moves you put in. But we're all now at an equal start. So no, no harm, no foul. We could do the same with, we could have men and women competing if we put the right amount of weights on the men. We, you know, we Harrison Berger on them. And uh, we do things. So we say, all right, you know, everybody gets to play. Everybody's got an equal chance. How about it? Yeah, sure. Okay, so a couple of things. One is 
the account of the Paralympics that you get isn't quite right because it isn't the case that different impairments, so being an amputee and being having poor vision, they don't race in the same category. The categories are in relation to the nature of impairment. And so uh, the functional test is the thing that leads to the categorization. So the ability to make a certain movement. But I do take your point more generally. I mean, I've talked to some of the Paralympians and people who organize Paralympic sport, and they say, if you <laughs> don't do what we've done, if you can avoid it, because the categorization process plays a big part in who wins the gold medal. So people move from one class to another. Let's say they get a bit more movement back or they train and they get some increased function and that moves them up a category and then they don't get the medal that they would have expected to. What this does is shift the, the determination of who wins off the field of play into the lab or into the place where the functional tests are being done. And that in itself is something we want to avoid doing. Now, of course, at the Paralympics, you need to get lots of minority bodies, different bodies in a competition that is interesting and close. So they are kind of impelled in this direction, but in respect of the sex categories in sport, I don't think we are impelled in that position because I don't think that there is an imperative to include male bodied athletes in female sport. I think there's an imperative not to, in fact, because we're not depriving anyone of the ability to compete in sport. If you have an open category that's open to everyone, that's the place. So it's not as if we need to make that further step towards handicaps or head starts or anything like that. So I want to deal with the solution of the open category. So you have this in some sports. So in poker and chess, both which we're going to say you're not so sure if it's a sport, but we basically have, there's women's poker and there's open poker. There's women's chess and there's open chess. And so in principle, anybody gets to play in those open categories, regardless of whether you're male, female, trans, cis, you get to play. But in practice, what you find is that they're just sex divided categories, that open chess is dominated by men. Open poker is dominated by men. And so what you'd be doing, if we had an open category in sport, is saying, look, anybody can play. But in practice, the trans women are going to get tranced by the men. And so there's that difficulty and the women are going to get absolutely tranced as well. And so it's theoretically open, but not practically open. And so that's where the objection lies. The other sort of objection lies, I suppose, in the sense of saying, well, I don't identify as open. I identify as a woman and I want to be recognized as a woman. And the line will be that human rights includes the right to participate in sport that trans women are women, and therefore you shouldn't push me into this open category. You should allow me to compete in the category of my choice, being the women's category. And if we were so worried that trans women were going to dominate the sport, well, we'd see it. They wouldn't just be Leah Thomas. There would be no women in sports. They'd all be eradicated by trans players, but they're the exception. So yeah, there's going to be a couple of compromises, but I mean, you're happy to sacrifice the men under five foot nine, happy to sacrifice the Europeans. I mean, I think in some senses you've accepted that there's a class of people who really are supermen 
and that they're defeating the lives of all these ordinary men who just, no matter how hard they try, are hobbled by their physiology. They're just ordinary men, but tough. That's just the way it goes. Sorry, guys, you take the sacrifice. We're going to exclude you. It's a zero-sum game and how many medals we can hand out. And so, yeah, a couple of women who would have had promising careers. I'm sorry, you're going to get turfed by, by the trans woman, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles. I don't think domination is the key argument. I never made the claim that trans women are going to dominate in female sport. And I don't think really, I mean, this is kind of Kantian and really fairly straightforward. It's not an argument about consequences. It's not an argument about numbers. It's not an argument about domination. It's an argument about fairness. And the reason for the category is that the female category kind of exemplifies a judgment that it's unfair for men to win everything, given that they got this advantage just by being born male, that's completely unearned, that means they're kind of 10% or whatever, faster or taller or whatever. And we think if we had unisex sports, we would only see men between the ages of 20 and 35 winning everything. We think that's unfair. So I'm not trying to, at the moment, justify that view, but if there is a justification for female sport, that will be it, that male advantage is unfair in this very kind of basic sense. And then if you have female sport, it kind of follows that male advantage in that category is going to be unfair. Now, if you're going to say, suck it up, you want to know why female athletes should, because I think accepting this unfairness is unreasonable. I don't think you've got good reasons to present to these female athletes for accepting unfair competition. And so I think that's the response there. I mean, so here there's a tension in my argument, which I'll acknowledge. I don't think people have a right to a category in which they are necessarily going to be successful. Right. Now there is obviously what I've said is there should be a female category because otherwise we win everything. What I'm now saying is if there's an appropriate category for me, but because I have modified my body or because I don't train hard enough or because I'm just naturally untalented, I'm not going to be successful in it. Right. If those things are true, that doesn't provide an argument for a new category, a separate category in which I'm destined for success. Right. So those two arguments seem to be intention, but what I would say about that is that there is a difference between the sexed justification of a category and let's say too lazy to train justification of a category or uh, what well, we've already talked about the less than five foot nine justification of a category. And I just think they are weaker justifications categories. And certainly they, I have modified my body in such a way that I'm no longer competitive. I don't think that's the justification of a separate category because I don't think we have the right to be competitive except for these very you know, special natural kind type cases. 
what's your response to the remodification of the body? So in other words, we say we're going to set a testosterone level. So, you know, the Olympic rules seem to try and say you've got to have sincerely been this way for a certain period of time. Mm. In other words, to try and knock out people who are opportunistically identifying. Mm. And you've got to make modifications to your physiology by mm. taking testosterone suppressants. If your claim is, well, one, does that sort out the problem on fairness? If not, is it just a matter of adding extra burdens? If you say, well, you could have had these other, you've gone through male puberty, you've got denser bones, whatever it is that you think is unfair, can we not just add extra hurdles so you go, okay, well, now I think it's fair. Now whatever male body advantage you have, we're fully compensated for it. The woman can't complain about being treated unfairly. There isn't now yeah. a zero-sum game. They're not being pushed out of the sport. And the trans athletes can say, well, we're included in the category we want to be included in, and mm -hmm. we've got a, a fair shot against them. Mm -hmm. Flip a coin. It's going to really depend on the training and how much effort you put into this game, not anything unearned. Yeah. Okay, so... The short answer to the first question is no, I don't think it's fair. Right. So where we are in the debate is that the science shows that there's residual male advantage after testosterone suppression. And that shouldn't be a huge surprise. We kind of knew that at the beginning because testosterone suppression isn't going to have effects on some anthropometric variables like height. And of course, I, hand size is going to be unaltered. I don't think it's reasonable to ask people to have bone surgery on their hands, but I think hand size is a significant performance enhancing feature of bodies when you're grappling a ball. So I don't think there's a way around this problem that is kind of humane and reasonable. Now. There is something else that you've raised that I've been thinking about, but I think it's a, a sort of reductio of the inclusion position, which is something like the response that says, okay, we accept that testosterone suppression will only reduce the male advantage by, let's say from 12% down to 3%. Let's just say, pulling figures out to the end. But then we could do something like fit a lead vest onto the trans athlete that would reduce it, that would make up for the remaining 3%. Now, I think that's a reductio. I think that looks weird as a solution. Why does it look weird? I think two reasons. One is epistemological that we don't know what weight of vest we should be putting on the trans athlete and the second is so we just don't know because we don't have the science but i'm not even sure there's a fact of the matter about what the right size of weight of vest is i'm not sure there is something out there that we can discover that is what this person would have been like had they been born a woman and therefore not have male advantage. So I don't think it's theoretically possible, let alone practically possible to come up with a fair net. So what does that mean? 
it means that we have got unfair racing, unfair competition. We don't know how unfair. We can't work out how unfair. We can't compensate. And what we're doing is creating unfair competition to try to deal with something that's basically false, which is the trans women in this respect are women. So we can't get around that truth. We can, you know, in lots of contexts, I'm quite happy to acknowledge people's gender identity and acknowledge that they feel uncomfortable with the fit between that identity and their body and so on and so on. But I don't think there's a way around male advantage in sport that delivers fair sport for women. Thank <laughs> you.